Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. And this is a very special two-part episode in collaboration with the Living Healthy Longer podcast, produced by the Columbine Health Systems Center for Healthy Aging and their communications and outreach coordinator, Hannah Hallisker. Yeah, we've got a special treat today, two special treats, actually. We're looking yes. forward to this. And it's an opportunity for uh, two podcasts, right? One from the Center for Healthy Aging and one from the College of Health and Human Sciences to collaborate and to talk to two of my favorite people on campus, two people that I look up to and I aspire to be like, and we'll, we'll learn more about them in the next couple of minutes. My, my name is Matt Hickey, and of course, my, my partner, Avi, and I have been doing this in health and human sciences for a while. We've got Hannah here as well. Yes. All right, so we've, we're doing some teamwork. And today we're going to talk to Dr. Nicole Earhart and Dr. Lisa Youngblade, two leaders on campus. There's a women in science feature to this, but I'm going to insert some opportunities for men to learn from you as well. And I I hope that that's okay because that's a a sincere sort of platform in terms of mentoring. And so we're just going to dive right in. We're going to have some fun today. We're going to try to follow a little bit of the script that we've used in in our Health and Human Sciences podcast and and then flip the script to the Center for for Healthy Aging and do a little bit of both. And we really look forward to these conversations conversations. And so, Nicole, we're going to start with you. And and one of the themes we've tried to sort of develop in our own podcast in the college is to get to know colleagues, both as individuals, as people and as scholars. And so we're going to ask you to weave a tale for us. Tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about who you are. We want to know more about your pathway. There's the obvious question of how did you get to where you are? But We've really enjoyed hearing that that sort of mental tape roll back to the early days. We've we've had stories others have shared about second grade teachers who had influences on them, those sorts of things. But for for all of us, I think uh, the pathways are are informative. They can be uh, exemplars for others who didn't think that they could do the things that you're now doing. So. We'll let you start to tell your tale, and we might just, uh, again, improvise and, and ask for some other questions as you tell us a little bit about who you are, wh- where you come from, and how did you get to the positions, plural, that you now hold here at CSU. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to be doing this um, in partnership with my wonderful colleague and friend, Dr. Youngblade. And uh, to tell you a little bit about my story, um, As a child, the first thing I can actually remember wanting to do was being a veterinarian. And I always gravitated toward all animals, everything from insects to, you know, cats, dogs, horses, cows, etc. And so throughout my younger years, I spent a lot of time sort of cultivating the idea of what would it take to get into veterinary school, talking to guidance counselors in high school, etc., And even then, um, you know, the field was still very male dominated, but very few women in the in the profession, but it was growing. And so there were opportunities I could see where there were other people like me that were doing veterinary medicine. And so as time went on, I went to college at Rutgers University, um, got a BS in animal science and then got into veterinary school at the University of Pennsylvania. And throughout my veterinary um, experience, I was in school thinking about surgery. I was really fascinated by the idea that you could, you know, open up an animal and do something inside and close them up and fix them somehow. And that was really satisfying to me. And so that was really a, a passion. Um, and I would say from there, um, a lot of my leaps in terms of going forward or changing sort of tracks 
came from opportunities where in like a, a single moment, some of my, like sort of my vision was sort of expanded where I could actually see a different focus or an expanded impact of what I was doing. And I can think of two very pivotal moments. So the first was I was in my surgical residency. So finished veterinary school, was accepted into an internship and then into a residency position in surgery at Colorado State University, which is a highly competitive program. And in that um, program, I was also asked during one of my rotations to participate as a lifeguard in a camp for children with cancer. And I was, this is one of my bosses that said, you're, you're going to go and be this lifeguard. And I said, sure, I'll go do that. So I showed up at this cancer camp, summer cancer camp, um, and met this little girl. And her name was Jenny. And she had just had an amputation. Um, she had bone cancer. So her limb had been removed to treat her cancer. And she was on chemotherapy. And she was losing her hair and trying to get around on crutches, et cetera. And at the same time in my veterinary world, I had been learning about osteosarcoma, bone cancer in dogs. And it turns out that osteosarcoma in dogs is identical to osteosarcoma in children. And yet in dogs, what we were learning about was this opportunity to salvage a limb or do limb salvage surgery, where we can actually replace removed bone and tissue in order to prevent amputation in dogs. And here I am looking at an eight-year-old girl with an amputated limb. And it was that one first pivotal moment where I realized these are the same diseases, and perhaps veterinary medicine could have an impact that might influence the ability for kids to be able to keep their limbs. And so that kind of launched a research career where um, I started looking into regenerative medicine and tissue regeneration and how we can replace or regrow musculoskeletal tissue in large defects, whether that's from trauma or tumor surgery or, in some cases, infection. Um, So fast forward about 10 years of doing this kind of work in stem cells and other types of regeneration, um, trying to figure out how to do this in in these large defects um, that people and animals would have, and learning about how the connection between medicine, human medicine and veterinary medicine was so, the, the veil between them was so thin, and that there was really a one medicine that encompassed all creatures, and that there was this concept that what we were doing really had an impact. I continue, by the way, to go to that cancer camp every single year, and I bring my graduate students now so that they can kind of see how impactful the work that we did and do still are and why we do what we do. And that's really an important piece of sort of what I want to teach and and pay forward to other generations. But now into the career, um, still making some really cool breakthroughs and still continuing to do this um, work in uh, kids' cancer and other areas of cancer research, and then suddenly realizing that a lot of the regeneration work I was doing where we were trying to solve the problem of large defects in tissues, we were actually just trying to restart the regenerative and repair and rejuvenation process of a tissue. And I suddenly, again, vision got expanded all of a sudden where I thought, wait a minute, this is actually the same thing that happens when we age. When we age, we lose muscle tissue, we lose bone mass, et cetera. It just happens on a really slow basis, not like all of a sudden, like a trauma or a tumor surgery or whatever. And could we then apply some of the things and strategies that we've been successful with in musculoskeletal tissue regeneration to aging? And then I went on to do a sabbatic at the Stedman Philippon Research Institute, where I had some opportunities to work with master athletes and stem cells and muscle work. And from there, really started thinking about This is another opportunity where just by expanding the focus, we could have a much bigger impact. Not everybody has tumors, not everybody has trauma, but everybody ages. 
right? And so the fact that we could apply these things on a more general basis and solve a bigger problem was fascinating and exciting to me. And then the opportunity came to lead this center, which really, again, was another expansion of vision, which is not just within the area of expertise that I have, but to uh, catalyze cross-disciplinary work across all colleges, all departments, with a focus on aging to address a single common challenge. And that was the next level. And so here I am. And that's been my story. <laughs> and we're, we're going to loop back, but I want to take mm -hmm. the long and winding road if I can, and then we'll come back to center leadership. So did you grow up in a rural setting where you had an opportunity to sort of spend time with animals? I did. Um, I grew up in sort of a suburban area in a, in a mountainous town in New Jersey. Yes, there are mountains in New Jersey, and it was very rural. We didn't even have our own post office. Um, I went to a regional high school. But a lot of my animal experience came from um, summer experiences up in Vermont. So I worked up in Vermont uh, at a horse farm, and so I enjoyed horses my whole life, but also all creatures, um, great and small. And so that was really, you know, a lot of my experience um, in terms of sort of pre-professional priming for the, the work that I do and did in veterinary medicine. And can I ask a little bit about family influence as well, parents, siblings, et cetera, that might have been part of the jet propulsion for your journey here? Yeah, my dad is an engineer and, um, and my mom was in medicine, although she worked as sort of a radiology technician. So I had exposure to the sciences and it was um, I think something that we as a family really enjoyed a lot of science projects and little experiments. And I remember many times hanging out with my dad in the garage and building things and looking at prisms and, you know, creating solar panels and just little things wow, like that yeah. that really had me fascinated. And I felt like, you know, the sky was the limit in science. And so that was always intriguing to me. You know, one thing I'm struck by, and I'm interested if you've had this experience as well, how many people over the 25 years I've been on campus who have told stories similar to yours where, where they had an early interest in veterinary medicine and it never wavered. Do you find that to be as common as it seems to be to me? It seems that in the veterinary field, that is a more common story than it is in most fields. And so, and it takes a lot of dedication and intention to get into veterinary school because as you know, it's actually more difficult to get accepted into veterinary school than it is to get into medical school, simply because there aren't as many veterinary programs in the U.S. And so I think to compete on that level, it can take some pretty good intention from childhood. But I think that it's really inspired by passion, um, and people become passionate about that at a very early age. You know, the Council of Research Associate Deans met yesterday, and Mark Zabel hosted over at the TMI and was sharing some statistics about the vet program here at CSU and, and remarked that uh, last year they had over 4,000 applicants to the vet program, yeah. which I found astonishing, to be honest with you. So the competitive nature of veterinary training is very much a real thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the world needs more veterinarians, to be frank. I mean, we, we have a dearth of, of people that are in practice that can handle the needs of a veterinary patient population. So I want to I want to loop us back to the, the Center for Healthy Aging for just a few minutes. And, you know, as somebody who was rooting in the background about, I hope we get good leadership for this program, right? When when your name emerged, I think there were a number of people on campus that were, were sort of hopeful. We had our fingers crossed. And so can you share a little bit about your, your you know, what appealed to you about that position and maybe cast a little bit of a vision? Again, it's, it's a really neat interdisciplinary opportunity. And I think the sky's the limit. I'm interested mm -hmm. in hearing what you have to think about it. 
Well, you know, it, it is, I've been always very passionate about cross-disciplinary um, collaboration. And so clearly a lot of my early experience was between veterinary and human medicine and then basic science. But, um, but you know, I've also recognized that as the problems and the grand challenges that we as humanity face become more and more complex, that the traditional sort of mode of most um, discovery is to really drill down very deeply within your discipline. And while that's extremely necessary and is really sort of the seeds to which we can attribute the the apples that we're now picking from our apple orchard, you know, the, the big discoveries and the things that have helped humanity um, grow in so many ways, they are, by themselves are not really the answer to the most complex questions. And I think the only way we can really make a lot of inroads into the big challenges that we face, global aging as a population is one of them, other things like climate change, et cetera, um, is really to think of them as um, transdisciplinary issues and that the greatest answers to some of those grand challenges will come at the intersections between disciplines rather than within a single discipline. And it will take the lens of all disciplines to really address and move the needle. And so when this position came up, I saw this as an opportunity to really bring together and catalyze so many different aspects. And quite frankly, aspects of aging that I knew very little about. Um, and yet I was eager to learn and, and I was very excited to, uh, you know, to understand fresh perspectives to even inspire my own vision about what this might look like in the future. And it's just become kind of its own sort of animal. It's created a, it's gotten a life of its own as a result of that. And really it's the talent of the faculty and the willingness of faculty to think outside the box and to really brainstorm as a group, as an interdisciplinary group um, that has led to the success that I think we have today. Well, we're lucky to have your leadership. So on behalf of the whole crew, we say thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I have a couple more questions, if I may. So the, the first one is uh, this endowed chair that you hold. And for many of our listeners, of course, they won't know exactly what endowed chairs are, but they are quite a distinction. And so tell us a little bit about your endowed chair role. Well, it's one of the greatest honors of my career to hold this um, chair position. Um, this uh, chair is named after one of my mentors. His name is Ross Wilkins, and he is still a mentor, still among us. Um, and uh, he was really working with uh, Steve Withrow, another one of my member, my mentors who was active here in the College of Vet Med for many years. And they really set an example of this concept of how medicine is a two-way street between veterinary medicine and human medicine and how by working together that we can really make bigger impacts. Um, they exemplified that in my early career. And so the chair, as it is now, um, is to honor that relationship, especially Ross Wilkins and his vision to work with veterinarians and how veterinary medicine would be so impactful in the human medicine world. He championed that for so many years. And so this is really to honor his legacy, but it is in um, musculoskeletal oncology and biology. So it is essentially a way for that program to exist into perpetuity, that there will always be someone sitting in this position that will dedicate their career toward this musculoskeletal biology and oncology um, field. And really in this idea that we can prevent amputation um, from tumor trauma or infection and continue to help people and animals lead whole lives. So that's kind of the concept. Well, congratulations. Thank you. 
another theme that we've tried to emphasize in our College of Health and Human Sciences podcast is, is that we're not merely scholars. We're human beings. We have lives off campus. And so tell us a little bit about Nicole when she's not pursuing these scholarly endeavors on campus. What are some things that interest you? Well, I am a big proponent of the work hard, play hard ethos. And so I really try to um, have an integrated life where a lot of my work um, is I'm, I'm very focused on, but I also focus hard on play. So the things that I like to do to play are mostly things that are outdoors. And um, I would say the top three are sailing, scuba diving, and skiing. The three S's. Yes. Yeah, yes. And so, you know, we'll throw in hiking and drinking fine wine and other things. <laughs> <laughs> and good food and, yes, um, good coffee, you know, all those things. So, you know, it's really, I think, about creating um, – a depth of richness in your life, both in your work life and your personal life that, you know, makes you feel like you're, I don't know, enriched in a way that um, integrates those things in both places. And if I may, in part because of the timing, you just got back from a bit of an adventure. Would you tell us just a snippet about your <laughs> your sailing you experience? Bet. Yeah. So I, I've actually been sailing since I was young, but I never really learned how to sail specifically or learned how to skipper a boat. So earlier this year, my husband and I went down to the British Virgin Islands and went to sailing school. And we actually got our skipper certification in order to sail bigger yachts, so like 50, 60 foot yachts. And we just did our first uh, bare boat experience where it was he and I co-skippering our first large sailing yacht in the British Virgin Islands. And we were there for a week and we had all kinds of adventure and, you know, mishaps, but lots of learning experiences and really had a ball and just uh, can't wait to do it again. <laughs> That's so great. That's amazing. I should great. add that I've known Nicole for two and a half years now. And when I talk to other people about her for that entirety of that time, I told them that she was a pilot as well. And only recently found out that she does not actually have a pilot's license. So yeah. I don't know where that, where that <laughs> legend originated, but there's a lot of people here who think you're a superwoman. <laughs> There's always time. I know. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> she can do you it all. Know. Who knows what might be next? Well, great. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks. We're, we're going to turn our attention to Dr. Youngblade. And of course, Lisa, you were our, our inaugural guest when we started this. And so we want to say welcome back, of course. And we have a different setting today. And we're interested in hearing some of the similar stories, of course, to, about your, your, your journey, your pathway. Uh, but perhaps upon reflection, you've got a few gems that you're, you didn't share last time as well. So we're, we're keen to learn more about how Lisa Youngblade got into the leadership position that she's in now. And let me predicate this by saying, you know, when, when Lisa came into the dean's role a couple of years ago, number one, again, very much the same story. There, there were hundreds of us on campus burning incense and praying and whatever it took. <laughs> Let's hope they're smart enough to offer it to her and, and that we're, we're, we might be lucky enough to have her as a leader. And so we're delighted. And then I've, I've been really fortunate. And I did not see this coming to have a front row seat and learn from you in, in a bit more proximity. So thanks for taking a flyer on me as well. I really do it's appreciate pleasure, that. It's my pleasure, You're amazing. Likewise. So welcome. Tell us, tell us about Lisa. Thank you. And I just also want to say what an honor it is to be here with Nicole uh, Earhart, also a, a friend and a colleague, and uh, actually was reflecting on two things that she said re repeatedly and didn't want to interrupt. So thank you, Hannah, for doing that, um, breaking the ice here a little bit. Um, but that concept of um, intersections and inflection points, and uh, my story is nowhere near as linear as Nicole's is. Um, but I think that same point of coming to an intersection, seeing something bigger, something different, um, following Yogi Berra, seeing a fork and taking it, um, <laughs> and just doing something maybe that's not 
what you anticipated at the beginning, but turns out to be the right decision. So I appreciate that. One of the first lessons my uh, graduate school mentor gave me was, Lisa, the big ideas are at intersections. And I have seen that personally, professionally, repeatedly in myself and students and in colleagues. So anyway, it was delightful hearing your story, Nicole, and also reflecting on how excited we were when you were interested in the director of the Columbine Health Systems Center for Healthy Aging definitely is a game changer for all of us on campus. So, okay, so my story is a little different. I was born in Brooklyn to parents who, uh, a dad never went beyond high school. Um, he was an optician um, by trade and apprenticeship, but not uh, educational background. Um, and my mom was a uh, an LPN, a licensed practical nurse, and she worked in public health. Um, she didn't work much after uh, having kids, but a little bit. So I had some you know, exposure to what she did. And um, the exposure I had, though, was not so much on the, the medicine or nursing part, but the dire straits that folks were in. And so I remember her cooking food often to bring on her home visits um, and talking about the opportunity to give to people that didn't have the same things that you did. And at that point, my life did not realize we also didn't have a lot, but it felt like we had a lot. Um, my parents died when I was well, when I was young. My dad died when I was 10. Right after that, we moved to Oregon. Um, so I went from this environment of really not ever thinking about school except for up to high school, maybe. We never talked about college. We never talked about anything beyond high school except maybe getting married, maybe being a stewardess. I remember at some point really being fascinated by the idea of teaching and so I would set my dolls up and, you know, they would be the students and I would be the teacher, probably similar to, you know, many other children. Um, but I never really thought about college as a thing and didn't, I couldn't, I don't think I could even name one probably growing up. My kids could from an early age. So it was really different. And then moved in with my aunt and uncle. Um, and shortly after that, my mom died. My aunt, my uncle, her brother, um, had gone on to get his PhD. His wife had a PhD. And so all of a sudden went into this household where it was an expectation that all the children would go to college. It wasn't, it wasn't up for discussion. Um, it was, uh, you know, an, an expectation and a lot of discussion about why. So, um, you know, why it's important to get your education, why it's important to have options, why it's important to get an education, not just so that you make more money, but that you have the opportunity to give back. So it was give back in a really, really different way. So um, he talked, he's an economist, my aunt was a sociologist, a lot of conversation about unfair and inequitable systems that harm people. And the only way you can change that um, is through education and really trying to disrupt systems. So, uh, you know, very early introduction to disruption and um, thinking about that. So, again, went to college, decided disruption was probably not the route. I didn't like my economics classes or sociology classes. And so went back to the idea of, of maybe I'll, I'll be a teacher. So I liked history, loved my history classes. History is fascinating because it's just stories. You sit and listen to stories of things that happen. You try and analyze them and then make, you know, make some sort of adjustment going forward that you learn from history. So I would be a social studies teacher, and this was brilliant. Um, and then I realized um, that maybe that wasn't quite right um, and decided to take a break in my undergraduate education and moved to Alaska for a year, worked on fishing boats, worked in canneries, had a very, very different exposure to work and decided at the end of that, I really wanted to go back to college, <laughs> finish my education and do something other than flipping fish. And um, 
came back and so I was like, okay, fine, I will be a high school teacher. This will be a great career and had to take an elective um, class. And so I chose to take developmental psychology from a professor, Dr. Beverly Fago at the University of Oregon. That's where I went. Um, and within 10 minutes of her talking had completely changed my whole career plan, what I wanted to do. I have never heard anybody as engaging speak about children and the way they think, the way they grow. And again, a storyteller, but from the science of uh, you know interpersonal, uh, you know a person's development, and went up to her after it. And I remember like shaking, like how do I do what you want to do? And so she became an incredible mentor, um, not just through the end of my um, undergraduate career, but all through graduate school. I went somewhere else, Penn State, for graduate school, and until her death, like was somebody I would routinely call and ask for career advice personal advice. Um, We'd have far-ranging conversations about random music and movies and books, but was just this powerhouse of a woman who was probably one of the most interesting, creative, innovative, brilliant minds I've ever had the opportunity to work with. So that was what happened in 10 minutes. Changed my major to developmental psychology (laughs) um, and decided I was going to devote my life to studying children. Then went to Penn State, got master's and PhD there. The program I went into, though, was not developmental psychology. It was human development and family studies. So this, for me, was a giant intersection point. I mean, I think there were probably ones before that. Obviously, I told you a big one of changing my major. But, you know, from thinking about it um, from like a, you know, career, professional, theoretical science lens, you didn't really understand what uh, interdisciplinary science was or interdisciplinary thinking. But human development and family studies is an intentional intersection between developmental psychology and family sociology. So it started in the 1970s. Uh, The first scholars uh, uh, started talking then and and made some really innovative observations about development being in context. And really, my development's different than every one of yours around this table, not just in the obvious choices we make, but actually in the way our bodies respond, our minds respond, our emotions respond, physiology, uh, all, all of that. Um, and that it's lifespan. At that point, you hit 20 and it's all down downhill from there. We know that that's not true anymore. So anyway, that was eye-opening to me. Worked with a, you know, some amazing professors um, and uh, met my husband there. And so, again, another inflection point for us is what to do with two careers in the same field, graduating at the same time. Would have been very easy to do a postdoc, do the traditional route. But we were a little bit off sync. Um, And so I went and started a faculty position. He finished up a year after me. Couldn't find a job in the city in which I was located. So then what do you do? Another inflection point. How do you balance family and uh, professional life? And, you know, backtrack this. Oh, gosh, I'm going to say it like three decades. I'm dating myself here. But (laughs) the opportunities for women, there weren't discussions about spousal hires. There weren't offices that helped you negotiate this. There weren't department heads that like, would go out and say, yeah, I'm going to create a, a, a second position because like, I want to get both of you. So moved to where he was, did a postdoc. He was doing a postdoc at uh, SUNY Albany, um, so time limited. We moved to Michigan because at that time the job market was very challenging. Again, did postdocs. Had the opportunity for me to work with another powerhouse woman, Lois Hoffman, who was um, at the forefront of women, careers, work-life balance, um, maternal employment, all of these things was, uh, uh, you know, the late 80s or early 90s. 
It was such a controversy in the field for women going to work and leaving their children in daycare or, you know, this guilt shaming of, of moms and women. And she was on the opposite side of that argument, showing the benefits to children with incredibly elegant science, not just saying it, not just doing sound bites, but doing this wonderful, rich science um, about this. I had the opportunity to work with her. Um, and so how great was that? Again, you know, years before, I would never have thought this would be my pathway. Um, and so anyway, a number of different pathways there. And eventually we ended up at the University of Florida. They recruited my husband to uh, their Institute on Aging. And, you know, I, I was a trailing spouse there. So got a job in the College of Medicine in an Institute for Child Health Policy um, and very quickly had the opportunity to jump into administration and building and decided I really loved it. I love the idea of thinking about really big ideas and helping to pull people together to execute the ideas, to think interdisciplinary, like what if you address this grand challenge as you talked about, Nicole, from multiple perspectives, not just what I was thinking, oh, this great interdisciplinary training I had was this small, right? The world of possibilities is this big. So how, do, how what happens if you bring those folks together? So fascinating uh, journey for me there, great learning experience, and then had the opportunity to come to CSU 2006 as a department head of human development family studies, fell in love actually before I interviewed um, just with the job announcement and then came and interviewed, uh, loved it. And we've been here since and have had the opportunity to just work in a lot of different capacities with a lot of wonderful people and very blessed now to be the dean. As is the college. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about your husband. He's a university distinguished professor. He is Dr. Montford Deal, um, also trained in human development and family studies with um, very interesting interdisciplinary, but also um, fascinating story in his own right. He's a German citizen, didn't actually move to the U.S. till he was in his you know, later 20s. Again, kind of not this linear path. He grew up in a very working class family and education, while valued, was not something that was expected or um, you know, certainly not beyond a trade or you know, a, a specific set of professional skills. He wanted to go to school to learn, and uh, and he did. So, yes, he uh, does aging research on thinking about um, negative perceptions, self-perceptions of aging and how they actually hurt our health, and they are modifiable. Um, partners uh, here with the Center for Healthy Aging mm -hmm. is also a wonderful colleague uh, and thinks is just really excited about the work that you're doing as director. As we are his, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when Lisa is not in the, the dean's chair on campus, what, what occupies you in terms of fun and ways to maintain that balance? Yeah. So recently I've become really fond of naps. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I never was a napper, but recently I was like, oh, my gosh, these are awesome. Um, and so I don't take Where them every day, clearly. Yeah. So, But um, when, when I do get them, I fully enjoy them. Um, I love being outside. So I, in recent years, have taken up gardening. I don't know that I'm very good at it. And thankfully, we don't have to survive on what I garden. But um, I love it. Um, I love being outside and hiking. I love traveling. Uh, COVID was really challenging in that way Indeed. to not be able to go anywhere. I don't sail. I love disaster movies, though, and this worries me about your sailing thing. <laughs> so, uh, we got to write a really good script for uh, you not to be in, in one of those movies. But um, yeah, so I like to read. That's the other thing. And may I press you on the music as well? Yeah, I do love music. I love listening to music. I love concerts, and I love playing it. 
And uh, I know what you're asking about, but earlier in, uh, so in the gap year I took in high school, one of my, um, one of my jobs was in a bluegrass band. And so I have had that experience too. And isn't Love that it. great? I yeah, just, that's so awesome. I never tire of hearing about that. And of course, th there's a shared interest there because Monfort has quite a collection of he vinyl does. at the house. Right? Mm -hmm. He so. does. I have to say, we mostly agree on music. Uh, anything in the rock, folk, classical area, but jazz, we diverge in a big way. Indeed. He's a big jazz fan. Some of it feels like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I have to disagree. He and I bonded on that. I still need to come by and see the collection. So. Uh, it's it's impressive yes. and it's good. Um, but and I appreciate that it's good. It's just not my genre. That's okay. That's okay. He hates bluegrass for what it's worth. So. <laughs> yeah. So you both have the things <laughs> we, that we have our you own know. independent likes. <laughs> That's good. What's awesome and fascinating to me that I hear in both of your journeys, whether linear or nonlinear, the one thing that was nonlinear for both of you was leadership. So how exactly did you come into, you know, the confidence, the realization that, you know what, I want to lead. And what I love most about both of you is that neither of you said, you know, I want to lead because I want to lead people. Like I want people to follow my direction. It comes from a place of gratitude and service. So talk a little bit about both your paths to leadership. Yeah, I think that leadership happened um, sort of in the tailwind of what was happening in my life. And that was one of those realizations where you're like, oh, I guess I am kind of a leader, you know? Mm. And now as I reflect back on a lot of my career, and I share this with um, people that are coming up behind me, that you're always a leader. You're a leader in your sphere of influence and in whatever that sphere is. Some of us have bigger ones, some of us have smaller ones, but we're all sort of influencers. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you can, you need to wield that influence with a lot of respect and humility. And so I think that just that perspective of the humility piece and that there's so like if I'm having a bad day I could affect people pretty negatively and they might take it personally but I'm just having a bad day and it has nothing to do with them type of thing so I think just understanding the kind of the influence and the responsibility that comes with that sort of was the foundation um, and then really saying okay from there how do I intentionally become a good leader what does that look like um, how do I vision cast for people? How can I create a vision that people can get behind? And then it's about creating teams of people that share that vision and just letting them do their best. Because when you have people that are in your sphere that are talented and passionate, it happens naturally. And all you're doing is you're in the front of the parade, you know, kind of waving the flag saying, you look at these guys. And so I think, honestly, that's, I have certainly done a lot of intentional leadership training to make sure that I'm not, you know, failing in certain areas. And I know that I still have much to learn and will continue to evolve as a leader. But I really think it starts with that kind of vision and humility and respect for the people that you work with to allow them to, you know, excel and to point in their direction as much as you can at what they're doing that is excellent. Very yeah, awesome. I, uh, awesome. I could not agree more with what you have said, Nicole. Yeah, I think um, actually it's a, a, a story about how children like humble you all the time. But my youngest son was in third grade. He had to do, uh, you know, a career day and come to work. And so he, he wanted to come and see what a department head did. And I remember just being so like proud that he gets to say his mom is a department head and he's going to come and do a great uh, like report on it or whatever. And so his the sum total of his report is that my job entails 
sitting at a desk, talking on the phone, and talking to people. Like he could not like <laughs> say anything really interesting about what I did, even though I gave him all this great stuff. But that's what he observed. Um, and <laughs> I know, right? Um, I still have his little picture of me sitting there with the phone glued to my ear. Um, and um, but I think it's that it's that commitment to really others, right? It's not about what you are doing and. Um, I think those are the leaders I've least admired most where they start with their CV or their title or their accomplishments first. The leaders that have inspired me and that I try to emulate are the ones that truly are servant leaders, that they, like, you have the ethos that we are better as a team, that their success is my success, their research is my, and I often say that, what's your research? And I was like, like, whatever the college is doing is my research Mm. right now. And I, I believe that wholeheartedly. I think Um, And I also just consider myself incredibly fortunate and grateful to have the opportunity to, you know, work with great people. I think generally the way I approach things and I uh, just to echo what you've said, Nicole, is a strength based approach. And then you surround yourself with great people and just get out of their way Mm -hmm. because they're really going to do it. Yeah. You know, there's something really appealing to me here and it, it for the listeners I would say what you've just heard is, is manifested in everything I've seen both of you do over the years you know this this combination of servant leadership and humility where it's not you that blots out the sun and everybody else is in your shadow it's an opportunity in fact again to to look for people who have strengths that you don't have exactly right as opposed to sort of clones of your style or your, your your pathways those, those things are really cool i've seen it in lisa for many years i don't know nicole as well but you know we got a chance to interact in the crucible of covid 19 and there was a call that extended well beyond the state of colorado obviously but but the, the narrow you know service call was to to do work for for at-risk human beings here in the state of colorado uh, that was well beyond sort of your research portfolio. You know, it would have been easy to say, no, 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 I'm just going to stick to what I'm doing in the lab and somebody else can figure that out. But there was a square wave of trying to ramp up and meet the needs of, of at-risk individuals. But again, done with Dame's, that same sense of, of service and humility that I have long admired in both of you. So I find myself you know, inclined to say thanks again and again, but it's sincere. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. I want to shift the story a little bit, and and we we have a prompt in here, and I'm I'm going to kind of tweak it just a little bit. Both of you have pointed to people and named names of individuals who were significant in your your pathway and your journey. So instead of talking about people as mentors, I'm interested in hearing you talk about the idea of mentorship. What has it meant to you, and what do you hope to do as mentors as you look forward to the next several years, right? People that you can have an influence on. We've often used the metaphor of individuals whose fingerprints we still carry with us, right, in, in our personal lives and in our professional lives. And so instead of naming names, I'm interested in your philosophy of mentoring and, and aspirations you have as mentors. It's hmm. a great question. Um, well, you know, I think the the core of mentorship for me is it's a paying forward aspect, but also it's about enabling people to do bigger and better things than you could ever do. If, if I can see that in the people that I mentor, that they go on to do bigger and better than I could have even imagined, I would count myself as successful. So um, for me, mentorship is about helping people believe in themselves, um, being brave enough to reinvent yourself and think outside the box and take a leap of faith and trusting that you're gonna land okay mm-hmm. and um, that you have the skills and applying skills that you might not have 
thought applied in a broader sense um, and just helping them see that. Like if it weren't for those times where sort of that broader perspective was suddenly, you know, that image or that vision of broader perspective, bigger impact didn't happen. I don't know that I would have taken those leaps, but all of a sudden when they were before me, there was something that called to me to walk through them. And I think if I could instill that passion in people coming up behind me, I, I would find that that would maybe make me feel like I was successful in mentoring. Um, so yeah. Here, here. Yeah, I think another um, way I think about mentoring, and I think this is from the perspective of, you know, having been a department head and um, and a dean, where you're responsible not only for people that you mentor. I think about that in one way, and. Um, then also think about it from sort of a systemic perspective and like what does a culture of mentoring look like where we do expect people to show up towards the betterment of other people, right? And so I remember institutionalizing this in our department as part of annual evaluations that, you know, you would be held accountable to mentorship, not in a prescribed way. I don't like prescribed mentoring. Like I, I, I don't like statements like here's your mentoring team unless it's a genuine organic relationship that's actually gonna be helpful to the person, that can be quite harmful, I think. Um, I also don't like mentoring as much towards a specific goal. Like um, an example would be, I, I, we're gonna mentor you to tenure mm -hmm. because that becomes an endpoint. Not, it's not the journey of your career. I think if we're mentoring somebody towards a wonderful, impactful, significant career, they're going to get tenure. They're going to get promoted. That's not the focus. It's the focus on the impact of what they're doing. So I've tried to like frame what a culture of mentorship, and then apply this to myself as well, looks like um, in being open always to you never know who's going to ask you a question that's going to lead to an opportunity for mentorship or vice versa. I never know who I might ask a question to, who I'm going to learn from. So try and you know think about that all the time. But also set, I don't know, a cultural expectation like this is how we interact with each other and this is how we support each other not just as faculty but also then how we engage our students because then i think it sets up modeling that kind of culture that hopefully they take to their next things and you start to see ripple effects so um critically important to think about mentoring um yeah so let's talk a little bit about the trajectory that you are both on or have been on and where you are now imagine someone who's listening who has the passion for science or has a passion for leadership, but just doesn't know or have the confidence to jump into that field, you know, minoritized individuals, women in STEM, um, speak a little bit to those individuals who want to jump in, go in the path that you are, but don't exactly know where to start. Hmm. Yeah, my first comment is that if you, if you have a passion for it, another word for passion could be calling. And there's a purpose that you have something to contribute. If you're already passionate about it, I would encourage you to look into what it is that you know you specifically are most interested in and then just start talking to people in those fields um, and trying to figure out what are the open doors. You already have something to contribute. I guarantee you, if you're interested and passionate, there is a role for you and there is a place for you in the STEM world. And then it's just a matter of finding folks to talk to, and you can start right here. You know, Lisa and I have done a lot of these conversations or others like us where, you know, find someone approachable that you can, you know, kind of talk about and then just start exploring. But don't don't ever sell yourself short because the passion's there for a reason. Yeah. I think to try and think about this, you know, from 
years of teaching and anybody in the, that teaches or mentors students or mentors others, you'll know some people are more verbal than others. Some people are more comfortable starting those conversations. So I think, you know, looking back over those three decades, some of the more amazing conversations or things I felt really great about is talking to somebody who's maybe sitting in the back row mm. and just starting a conversation. It might not have ended that they want to work with me or do anything really related to me, but just trying to like provoke some ideas or solutions or not even solutions, really pathways, you know, have you thought about talking to this person or an introduction? And um, so I think there's some element of that too, of just trying to instigate something that you might, somebody might be just not comfortable hmm. taking that leap yeah. themselves. Um, That's great. Yeah. Something as simple as I see you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right? can be the start to, you never mm -hmm. would have guessed in a million years, mm -hmm. right? but it was that act of, Yep. Yep. Right. And what are you thinking? Exactly. And I hear you. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly. Such a good point. Yep. Do y'all have any stories of students that or individuals that you spoke to and that blossomed into a mentor mentee relationship? You know, I will say it, it, it was interesting after I interviewed for Dean right at the end of the you do an open forum and talk about your vision, et cetera. And somebody came up to me after that and said, I want to I want to do what you're doing. Can you show me how to do it? Hmm. And actually, we work together today. You know her, Michelle Foster. Oh, wow. And uh, that started awesome. this incredible relationship. Um, and she's got so many skills and just needed a little bit of a door opened to like, how do I start? And um, yeah. Yeah. Now she's the assistant, she's assistant dean, dean of dean Diversity, college. Equity, Inclusion, and Justice, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. A future guest as well Absolutely. of Health and Human Science yeah. Matters. Yeah. Uh, what about you? Yeah, you know, I think we all have so many stories of surprising, um, you know, contact from students many years in the future that kind of come back to say, you know, you, you don't you maybe don't remember me, but this is what this is how you influenced me. Hmm. And one I can think of in particular is a brand new faculty member at my first faculty job at the University of Illinois. That's where I was at first before I came back here as a faculty. And we had there was a program for undergraduate students that um, for first generation college students or minorities or um, marginalized people groups um, and they were getting they were basically um, creating fellowships for for uh, students in those particular areas to come and work beside other scientists and this uh, woman that um, came to our program worked with me on the clinic floor and we did a, a clinical study where she actually got authorship on a paper and it was on heart-based tumors and so we did a bunch of uh, record reviews and stuff and wrote this paper and she was an author and she went on to finish her college degree, and then um, I kind of lost touch with her. She actually contacted me by Facebook, found me on Facebook, and now we're talking like 25 years later. She became a physician. She is now a faculty member at Harvard. Wow. I know. Wow. And I didn't know any of this. And she said, you know, that was my first foray into the impact that clinical medicine can have and, you know, research. And I just want to thank you. And I had no idea. So, you know, you think about those kinds of stories, and I'm sure we probably could count many of those. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I guess that's the point about, you know, you're always an influencer. You never realize what ripples, just that conversation with the person in the back row, or just that mm -hmm. listening and asking, like, what are you really interested in? You know, tell me more about you and, and what your passion is. And it leads to places you'd never expect. So 
I don't say that at all to toot my own horn because I think we all have those stories, but, uh, but it is just something important to remember about your ripples continue a lot further than you think. And I can certainly say that is the case for the people that mentored me as well. So well, and I think about that all the time in the context of a land grant university where there are a lot of students like me who are first gen students mm-hmm. and don't even know how to frame a question maybe, or have a framework for what a career could look like. And so I love being at CSU and have generally always been at land grants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That is so awesome. I've got a question when we talk about women as leaders in science, Lisa, going back to what you were saying in your story, how back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was not a conversation of spousal hires and and those kinds of things, women in science. I wonder, how do you see both of you, how has that changed in your time, in your leadership roles, when you see students female students, women in science coming up now and the, the world that they're entering for work, how is it different? So I have a lot of thoughts about this because I think about it, um, A, first, the world has evolved and so I think we are much better at it. I don't think we're perfect, but I do think we're much better. Um, and I think about what does it mean f- to be a woman in science? And let me explain that for a minute. So I think when we think about science, we think about hard science, we think about STEM, We think about bench science. I come from a social science, behavioral science background. And guess what? There are tons of women in my field. So if you tell me, how do I get women in science? I'm like, they're already here. But the interesting part about it is because it's a softer science, we don't actually count it as science. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these amazing women who are leaders are making incredibly influential um, scientific discoveries using incredibly rigorous scientific methods somehow are not getting credit for it. So I think about it really different. We have plenty of women. It's how do we elevate what we're doing to be seen as science. And this has become incredibly more important to me over the past, I don't know, decade when I started thinking about this from a leadership perspective of how do we build the street cred of of what we're doing. And it's fascinating. Last Two years ago, I think, we celebrated our 150th anniversary here at CSU, and one of our proud roots is home economics. I know when I say that, everybody's thinking about cooking classes, sewing classes, etiquette classes, whatever it might be. And if you look at the origins of things like food science, mm-hmm. the top science in our field was by women at CSU. Hmm. The early experiments on high-altitude baking, the incredible rigor in thinking about the science of cooking and nutrition and under varying conditions was done here by women. And yet we think about home ec in a very, very different way. So I think the challenge for me is really continuing to attract women and men and whoever are interested in these really important gnarly problems that affect people, but elevating the reputation and the um, regard of what is truly science. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so surgery, whether it's um, human-based or veterinary-based, is still a fairly male-dominated profession. And so most of the conferences I went to early in my career, there were very short lines at the ladies' room, which, you know, those were that was nice back then. Um, but, you know, the truth is, is that this is becoming more and more popular among women, um, surgery in general. But um, I also think there's this element of, those of us who have been doing this since the days when there were really short lines at the ladies' room are now at a place in our lives and our careers where we're senior enough to be able to take leadership positions. 
And I think the more often that we step into the arena and accept those roles, um, the more we can, first of all, imitate or, or provide a model for those who are coming up behind us, but also we can begin to influence the way the fields are going, whether that's in academia or in specific fields of medicine or science, um, from the perspective of women. And just continue to help people understand that there's this element that had been somewhat missing from conversations before that now people are much more aware of. And it's that whole kind of unconscious bias that we, we all have. We don't always really even realize that there's that that's all going on, even among our own people. And so I think as long as we are conscious of that and continue to elevate those conversations, I think that's progress and it will continue to need time to catch up and certainly more time for other people groups as well. And so, yeah, I think those are the big keys and the big difference. And certainly we're evolving and it's changing and I think it's happening. But it does take people stepping into those roles and accepting that responsibility when, you know, maybe that's not very comfortable for all of us and it's not always comfortable. Yeah. I think the the point you were making, Lisa, about hard versus soft science, all of this that we're talking about with interdisciplinary research these days is like the key, I feel like, to making that more holistic view of science as both parts. Because I, I feel like if you stay in your one discipline that you've only ever studied and you don't get to see the hard or the soft side, the other side of science, you you don't have that appreciation for it. But now we're opening these doors and we're having more of these collaborative conversations. And I, I at least see from my perspective that shifting the way that you're describing. Yeah. And I think and I think students are approaching it differently too, right? So they're expecting that broader view. They're asking, they're actually demanding it, right? Mm -hmm. They get that the world is complex and uh, isn't just solved in a particular way. And so I think uh, that gives me great hope too, right? That that's going to continue to help us uh, evolve. And they also, I say this, you know, having been a, a student in well, the, you know, the 80s and the early 90s and, you know, expectations for graduate students as a female. I always volunteered to do every bit of like whatever needed to be done. I was first in line because I felt like I had to continually prove myself. Mm -hmm. And so to get attention, I like killed myself. Mm -hmm. um, I don't I don't know that students do that now, nor should they. Right. I think they're more confident in expecting, you know, an equal education and equal opportunity. Again, not perfect, but it's different. Yeah. And, and in a good way. I would agree with that. Having finished my graduate school education just a few years ago, I definitely walked into it with that equal opportunity kind of approach and wanting to get the same experiences as my male counterparts or, you know, whoever. So it's beautiful to see that shift happening. Yes, it <laughs> here, is. Here. And that's the show. Thank you for listening to another episode of Health and Human Science Matters. Now it's time to go check out part two of this episode on the Living Healthy Longer podcast, where we'll hear more from Drs. Earhart and Youngblade about their research in healthy aging. Find the link in this episode's description.